This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd was released in 1973. And I know you're wondering, this is Our American Stories, what are you doing? Spending an hour, because we're going to spend an hour on this record. Why an hour on a British record? Well, we make exceptions for British records. We did it with Robert Plant, and we've done it before. We're going to do it with Dave Clark Five, too, because what a story about that band's life. But, you know, the British music experience, it's one and the same. Robert Plant came here, well, two times to discover his identity. The Beatles, think about their early music. My goodness, it's Chuck Berry music, for goodness sake. The Rolling Stones, where are the Rolling Stones without Muddy Waters? And so for that reason, we dig in to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Here's Jesse with a story. Dark Side of the Moon was Pink Floyd's eighth album, released on March 1st, 1973 by Harvest Records, a label the band is still represented by in Europe to this day. The album was an immediate commercial and critical success, topping the Billboard chart for a week and remaining in the chart from 1973 to 1988. With more than 45 million copies sold, it's Pink Floyd's most commercially successful album and one of the best-selling albums of all time. It's actually listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for being on the charts longer than any other album in history, namely 591 consecutive weeks, or 11.4 years on the Billboard Top 200, and a total of about 14 entire years, or 741 weeks, and a staggering 26 years in some Billboard chart or another. It's been remastered and re-released twice, covered in its entirety by several other acts. It's produced two singles, Money and Us and Them. It's the band's most popular album among fans and critics, being ranked as one of the greatest albums of all time. Here's Pink Floyd's Roger Waters and David Gilmour. It was one of those really good moments that most bands do experience, where everyone is on side and everyone likes the idea and there's some sort of agreement as to more or less who's going to do what. Dark Side of the Moon started in a rehearsal room in Bermondsey, I think, that belonged, a warehouse belonged to the Rolling Stones, where we did some um, sort of jamming, writing, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure how much writing happened there. You know, let's play E minor and A for an hour or two. Oh, that sounds all right. That'll take up five minutes. The making of The Dark Side of the Moon is perhaps one of the all-time great recording stories. It charts the journey of a band who previously pushed the boundaries of what was possible in the recording studio. Sid Barrett had departed the band in the late 60s after suffering for years with ongoing mental illness. Bass player Roger Waters had taken up the lyric writing mantle in his absence and the overall direction of the group, while occasional lead guitarist Dave Gilmore joined as a full-time member, cementing a solid lineup that included Nick Mason on drums and Richard Wright on keyboards and synthesizers. Between May of 1972 and January 1973, Pink Floyd spent pretty much all of their time at Abbey Road Studios, the former home of the Beatles, and still a hotbed of innovation with its world-class recording equipment. The music and the lyrics for the entire album were written during a seven-week period in which the band were preparing for a tour where they desperately wanted to premiere new material. Here's David Gilmore on the unique mix of audio that he and the rest of the band would apply in the production of Dark Side of the Moon. The original Dark Side of the Moon that everyone knows and loves so well is actually third generation tape, most of it. Most of the drums and bass and rhythm guitars were all bounced into a two-track mix. And this mix, we've gone back to the very original tapes, synchronized them all together, and everything 
is original takes and a better sound quality. It's being remixed to be close to the original, but to be in the quadraphonic SACD format. Roger Waters wrote the lyrics to Breathe and all of the songs on this particular Pink Floyd album. Here's Roger Waters talking about the lyrics of Breathe. I listened to it again recently and it uh, always amazes me uh, that, I that I got away with it really because it's so sort of lower sixth, uh, you know. Um, breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care. In fact, I think within the context of the music and within the context of the piece as a whole, people are prepared to uh, accept that simple exhortation, to be prepared to stand your ground and attempt to live your life in an authentic way. Pink Floyd's keyboardist and vocalist, Richard Wright, recalls a chord from this track that he lifted from another famous musician at the time. There's a certain chord, which is... That is totally down to a chord I had heard on actually Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue, which is um, that chord. That chord I just loved. And when we're doing Breathe, we got to G, I got to G, and how do you get to E again? Well, again, normally you go... But... Um, I remember this chord, and I remember working it out at home, listening to the record, and I just thought... Even though Dark Side of the Moon was one of the highest-selling worldwide albums of all time, it would only win one Grammy Award, and it won for Best Engineered Album. The engineer from this album was Alan Parsons, who produced Abbey Road and Let It Be for the Beatles. He's also the same Alan Parsons of The Alan Parsons Project. Here, Alan lets us hear the isolated vocal tracks from Breathe. Look around, choose your own ground. There's also a harmony part. For long you live how you fly that's, that's it on its own smiles you'll give and tears you'll cry and all you touch and all you see is all your life will ever be back to the band there's a two organ parts which have come in now on the Run is the third track on Dark Side of the Moon. It's heavy on the use of synthesizers and experimental recording techniques. This is where you start to get the feel, even to this day, that Dark Side was and continues to be a concept album. A sonic experimentation. Music of the future. Well engineered and carefully constructed. And when we come back, more on Dark Side of the Moon, released this day in history in 1973. And by the way, our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, one of the finer places in this country to study the finer things in life. When we come back, more with Jesse and Dark Side of the Moon.
is our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, released on this day in history in 1973. On the Run is the third track on Dark Side of the Moon. It's heavy on the use of synthesizers and experimental recording techniques. This is where you start to get the feel, even to this day, that Dark Side was and continues to be a concept album, a sonic experimentation, music of the future, well-engineered and carefully constructed. Here's David Gilmore and the rest of the band talking about the importance of sound mix back in the days long before digital editing. They would record live and edit reels and reels of tape with razor blades. This section in particular, the, the travel section, the uh, on-the-run section, um, I think was pretty complicated. A, a, lot, of, a lot of hands on, on deck. You'd always want to put more things on than you had tracks for. So tracks would very suddenly change from one thing to a different thing. All of us are on the desk with our fingers on the faders. But that's the way it was because uh, we didn't have automation in those days. A mix in those days was a performance, every bit as much as doing a gig. It's one thing actually that we've kind of lost in the, in the, in the modern age. Here's David Gilmore and Richard Wright with a demonstration on how they brought that space-age sound to an album that none of them were actually crazy about at the time. I think we were none of us that happy with it as a, as a piece. And when we also had this synthesizer, I just plugged this up and started playing one sequence on it. And uh, Roger immediately pricked up his ears and thought, that sounded good, and came out and we started mucking with it together. And... Um, um, and he put in a new sequence of notes and it all developed out of that. A series of notes played in slowly, triggering a noise generator and oscillators, and then just speed it up, you know. They've got it, basically. course immediately sounded much more exciting and new than what we are currently doing. That audio engineer we heard from earlier, Alan Parsons, the only guy to actually win a Grammy for Dark Side of the Moon, one of the top three selling albums of all time in world history, well, he was the man behind the iconic sounds of the clocks leading into the next track, Pink Floyd's Time. Dark Side was really the, the first proper engineering job I'd been given with uh, with the Floyd, so I was pretty much put in at the deep end. I was commissioned to um, record s some uh, clocks for a sound effects record for um, the very early days of Quadraphonic. And when we were doing time, he suggested we might like to have these clocks. My memory of it is just this room full of tapes rolling around because it, it was without any sort of com computer help, everything had to be done manually. Getting all the clocks to chime at the, at the right time, and that was a, a process of uh, just finding a particular moment on the multi-track tape where all the chiming would happen, and then back-timing the, uh, all the quarter-inch originals which contained the, each of the clocks. And then the, the very critical thing of tapes starting at a specific moment, which is all done with hand signs and stopwatches.
Here once again is sound engineer Alan Parsons letting us hear some of the isolated tracks from Todd. Got the uh, girls making their first appearance here. That's unprocessed. And um, we actually put this effect called a frequency translator on them, which made them sound like this. Even though Roger Waters wrote the lyrics to Time and all the other songs, Time was the only song on the album credited to all four members of the band. It's a song about how time can slip by, but many people don't really realize it until it's too late. Waters got the idea when he realized that he was no longer preparing for anything in life, but was already right in the middle of it. I suddenly realized then that year that uh, life was already happening. I think it's because my mother was so obsessed with education and the idea that childhood and adolescence and, well, everything was about preparing for a life that was going to start later. Um, And I suddenly realised that life wasn't going to start later, that it had, you know, it starts at dot and it happens all the time and that at any point you can grasp the reins and start guiding your own destiny and that was a big revelation to me at the end of time we're suddenly taken back to a reprise of the album's second track breathe here's david gilmore with just his guitar performing decades later with that same unmistakable voice and those same angelic chords home home again i like to be here when I can When I come home Cold and tired It's good to warm my bones Beside the fire And far away Across the fields The tolling of the iron bell Faithful to their knees To hear the softly spoken magic spells After an epic track like Time, followed by a flashback to Breathe, the band would then choose to take the album to an open space for instrumentals and improvisational vocals. Here's keyboardist Richard Wright on composing the chords that lead into the great gig in the sky. The band basically wanted another four or five minutes of music and we thought it could be an instrumental. I think I just, as I always have done, is I sat at the piano and, and I... And those first two chords came. This song began life as a Richard Wright chord progression known as the Mortality Sequence, or the Religion Song. During 1972, it was performed live as a simple organ instrumental accompanied by soft-spoken samples from the Bible. 
When Pink Floyd came to record Dark Side in 1973, the lead instrument had been switched to a piano. Various sound effects were mixed over the track, including recordings of NASA astronauts communicating on space missions, but none were satisfactory. Finally, a couple of weeks before the album was due to be finished, the band thought of having a female singer wail over the music. Here's the members of Pink Floyd describing how they found singer Claire Torrey to sing the part. No idea whose idea it was to get somebody, a female singer in, but Alan Parsons knew Claire Torrey and he'd been working with her and said, why don't you try her? And she just went in there and improvised over it. Yeah, that was amazing, that was fantastic. That was done while we were mixing. We knew what we wanted, not exactly musically, but we knew that we wanted someone to just improvise over this piece. So we directed her, we said, well, think about death, think about horror, think whatever and just go and sing. And my memory is that she went out in the studio and did it very, very quickly, and then came back in and said, I'm really sorry about this, very embarrassed. And we, in fact, were sitting in the studio saying, this is wonderful. And of course, it's absolutely brilliant. Both, both Rick's um, piano and organ work and Claire's singing is just incredibly moving. And here once again is sound engineer extraordinaire Alan Parsons to isolate the audio giving us that rare glimpse into the raw structure of a masterpiece. At the, end, at the very end of this I remember we increased the echo slowly. our American stories and you're listening to the story behind the story of Pink Floyd's 1973 album Dark Side of the Moon one of the highest selling albums of all time at upwards of 45 million copies worldwide more after these messages This is our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, released on this day in history in 1973. Claire Torrey, who was a 25-year-old songwriter and session vocalist at the time, got a call one night from a friend who worked at the legendary Abbey Road Studios in London. I knew nothing about this. Uh, I just had a call from this guy that worked at Abbey Road called Dennis, who said, rang me up and said, was I free to do a session? and the band were there, and they proceeded to explain to me that they were doing this album, it was nearly finished, and that the concept of the album, they played with the backing track. So I started off by going, oh, baby, baby, yeah, yeah, baby, baby, which is what one tended to 
to do for sort of scat sort of singing. And they said, oh, no, 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 we don't want any words. Well, that really stumped me. It sort of happened when I, I thought, well, I really don't know what they want. I don't know, but uh, okay, best feet forward. After a first and second take, Claire Torrey's confidence was starting to fade because she wasn't getting any feedback from the band. They said, well, I think we'll do another take. And so I did another one. And then David said, I think you could improve upon that. And I didn't think I could. And so I started a third track. And in the middle, I stopped and I said, look, I really think that you've got enough because it felt it felt fairly complete you know so um i went into the control room and they played it and alan sort of used you know a bit of this and um not a lot was said and i said oh well well thank you very much um goodbye and left and i was convinced it would never see the light of day because they hadn't commented they hadn't made any do you know what i mean they hadn't said great awful Nothing. I honestly thought they didn't like it. And uh, I didn't give it much thought because I never thought it, anybody would hear it. The fact of the matter was that Gilmore, Waters, and the rest of the band couldn't believe what they had just captured on two and a half takes. Released as a single, Money became the band's first hit in the United States, reaching number 10 in Cashbox magazine and number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. The demo tracks for the song, including some of the sound effects, were recorded in a makeshift recording studio Roger Waters had in his garden shed. I would have I would have remembered um, writing money as a sort of very bluesy thing. And here's Roger Waters more recently with one of his trademark licks in Money. I can't I can't sing it up in that register, but Money. Get away. We'll get a good job with more pain. Okay. It's a very kind of transatlantic, you know, bluesy sort of twang to it all. Listening to the original demo, it's not like that at all. It's all very kind of prissy and very English. Money not only put Dark Side of the Moon in the spotlight of the music world, it catapulted Pink Floyd into the superstar stratosphere. They were now official rock royalty. That kind of stardom always comes with a price. Here's David Fick from Rolling Stone magazine and Pink Floyd about the fame they achieved from their big hit, Money. 
Money is an amazing single because it's about the very thing that it became. It's about success. Something certainly did the trick and it moved us up into Super League, I suppose you might say, um, which brought with it some great joy, some pride and some problems. Of course it changed our life. Um, we were now a big rock and roll band playing in stadiums. You don't know what you're in it for anymore. You know, you were in it to achieve massive success and get rich and famous and all those other things that go along with it. And uh, when they're all suddenly done, you're going, hmm, well, why? What next? It's not to say we didn't do some good work, but the good work that we did was actually all about a lot of the negative aspects of what went on after we'd achieved um, the goal. Studio time while recording Dark Side of the Moon would typically be interrupted for one of two reasons. Either soccer or Monty Python television broadcasts. In fact, Pink Floyd were such Python fans that they used some of the money they made from the initial success of the album to help film Monty Python's The Holy Grail. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you ma'am. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. Us and Them was written by Roger Waters and Richard Wright with lyrics by Waters, and it's sung by David Gilmour with harmonies by Wright. The song is 7 minutes 51 seconds in length, making it the longest on the album. Us and Them was released as the second single from Dark Side of the Moon in the United States, peaking at number 72 on the Cashbox Top 100 Singles chart in March of 74. It's a song rather quiet in tone and dynamics with a prominent jazz influence. Here's David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine on the simplicity of this song. The simplicity of the Floyd is really almost hard to talk about because it is so simple. Um, Nick Mason playing very slowly, you know, exact, without a lot of overly frilly percussion flourishes. Um, Richard's touch on piano and organ, very gentle, very soft, um, but also exact and just, you know, hitting the notes right. It was always about leaving space. Dave and Rick, their harmony vocals on it are really very affecting. They, uh, funnily enough, they have very similar voices. Both their voices are a big factor in Dark Side of the Moon, the way they, the way they blend. And here again is audio engineer Alan Parsons with the audio dissection. That's Dave and Rick together. And then Rick does another part below that, which you can hear now. And then the girls are also joining in.
Any Color You'd Like is the eighth track on Dark Side of the Moon as an instrumental by David Gilmour, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason. It serves as an upbeat transition from Us and Them into the ninth track on the album, Brain Damage. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the story behind the story of Pink Floyd's 1973 album, Dark Side of the Moon, one of the highest-selling albums of all time at upwards of 45 million copies worldwide. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the story of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, released on this day in history in 1973. Any Color You'd Like is the eighth track on Dark Side of the Moon as an instrumental by David Gilmour, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason. It serves as an upbeat transition from Us and Them into the ninth track on the album, Brain Damage. It was sung on record by Roger Waters with harmonies by David Gilmour, who would continue to sing it on his solo tours. The song is somewhat slow with a guitar arpeggio pattern similar to the Beatles' Dear Prudence. It's in the key of D major and features a recurring lyrical pattern and chorus. The song seemed to be partially inspired by their former band member, Sid Barrett, who had endured a mental breakdown. Here's David Gilmore, Roger Waters, and the rest of the band looking back at this album in all its glory. obviously a bit to do with Sid and I think it's about defending the notion of being different the lunatic is on the grass the lunatic is on the grass remembering games and daisy chains and laughs got to keep the loonies on the path the lunatic is in the hall the lunatic is in the hall The paper holds their folded faces to the floor And every day the paper boy brings more And if the dam breaks open many years too soon The fundamental question that's facing us all is whether or not we're capable of 
dealing with the whole question of us and them. What he was feeling as an individual mirrored almost exactly what a lot of other people were feeling at the time in their own lives. There's no question in my mind that, that Dark Side of the Moon was one of the most important artistic statements of the last 50 years probably. It's touched very many people all over the world in ways that could not simply be put down to the fact that, oh, they're nice tunes and, oh, I like that bit at the end. I mean, it, this was a complete experience. It was, a, it was actually a really grim time. And he wrote a very grim record, but did it with music that was extremely uplifting, compelling and bewitching. I think it was a very, very happy and creative and enjoyable time when we made this album. It was probably the most focused moment in our career in terms of all of us working together as a band. I'd love to have been a person who could sit back with his headphones on listen to that the whole way through for the first time. I mean, I never had that experience, <laughs> but uh, would have been nice. The thing that's often missed is the fact that basically people are responding to it on an emotional level, and that's what makes great records. It's driven by emotion. There's nothing plastic about it, you know, there's, no, there's nothing contrived about it. And, and I think that's what has given it its, or maybe one of the things that's given it its longevity. album comes to an end in eclipse with lyrics echoing the book of ecclesiastes we rise over the top of a crescendo only to start back at the very beginning to the haunting rhythm of a beating heart and then there's this little voice there is no dark side in the moon really matter of fact it's all dark what was that well when pink floyd recorded dark side of the moon they inserted a lot of random spoken word over a lot of instrumental sections that were so loud you could often just barely hear what the person was saying there is no dark side in the moon really this guy at the very end of the album was the front doorman at abbey road studios in london here's roger waters and the rest of the guys talking about the interview process that they used to bring this spooky spoken word element into the album i've no idea why it did to to have um voices on this thing so the only thing that was clever about it at all was how to do it. So not 
not to have an interview. Devised probably in the canteen and um, done later that evening. So I wrote out a bunch of cards and, uh, with um, questions on them. I think what the voices did on the record very well was they, they actually brought out the dark side. They were, in a way, the dark side of the record. First of all, we used a number of people who were in the studio with us, so we used three or four of our road crew. I aren't frightened of dying at all, because when you gotta go, you gotta go. The Irish doorman here, Jerry. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it, you gotta go sometime. Wings were recording in here at the same time, so we actually used Paul and Linda, Henry McCulloch. I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. It's the people who are not used to being interviewed who come up with the stuff. I think they started off with, what's your favourite colour, you know, and, and your favourite food, and, when, and none of which was just to get people there. And then they went into, when was the last time you were violent? This was the good bit. Was, when was the last time you were violent? And then you'd, take, you'd answer it and then take the next card and the next card said, were you in the right? Yeah, <laughs> I was in the right. Yes, absolutely in the right. I certainly was in the right. Yeah, I was definitely in the right. That geezer was cruising for a bruising. And uh, this remarkable roadie called Roger the Hat. If I participate in this effort, I hope I'm going to get my gold disc at the end of it. Imagine that. Oh. They were trying to track him down to do the cards and by the time they got hold of him somebody the, the cards had gone missing I don't know where they'd gone so uh, Roger Waters actually ended up doing it he actually did do that one as an interview right so do you ever <laughs> think you're going mad Roger um I once reached a stage in my life where I was completely convinced that I'd gone over the brink or well, that's what I cared to call it to call Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon an album almost seems to sell it short it's a seamless work of art. I mean, the whole thing is one giant track. You're just supposed to listen to the whole album from beginning to end. You don't just you know, listen to individual tracks of Pink Floyd. That's why it's kind of annoying to listen to it on the radio because the DJs inevitably have to start and stop the tracks. Nothing wrong with that, but Pink Floyd should always be listened to, at least Dark Side of the Moon, in its entirety. And if you've got kids that are just getting interested in music, this is an excellent place to start them on the discovery of rock and roll. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And that's Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, released on this day in history in 1973. And by the way, our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, one of the finer places in this country to study the finer things in life, arts, history. You'll learn the Constitution there. Heck, you'll even read Plato, and you'll even read Aeschylus and Shakespeare. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. And that's simply by you going to hillsdale.edu. Twelve great online courses, full courses are there for you and your family to enjoy. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Don't 
This is Our American Stories, and we love to do segments about this thing called the American Dream. We know it's alive and kicking, because I think if you opened up the doors, 50 to 100 million people would probably come here. So we know it's alive. Some people in America might not think it is, but the rest of the world does. And we love to tell stories about American Dream, and some of our best, an hour with Mario Andretti, what a life story. And today... We're going to listen to the story of one such American dreamer who, in the, in the world of business, changed the world, revolutionized the world. A very unlikely person to do so from his past and from his very humble beginnings. Let's take a listen to this story. Here I go. Higher, higher. Here I go. Created the world on time. A modern wonder where everything from the latest gadgets to the most critical documents, what you want and what you really need, can be delivered overnight. His team works this fast. Okay, you just travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA, and Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA, and Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here? What really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think I might be. I'm going to figure and have a sharp mind. Excellent. Can you start on Monday? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Without hesitation. Congratulations. Welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, call Fred, Low, Dork, Ava, Ted. Business is business. And as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, we got to get to work. So let's get to work. Thank you for taking the meeting. PD did a bang-up job. I'm putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter. That's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect. Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. Is Mr. Schnittler here to see you? Home to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just tell with Don. In this fast-moving, high-pressure, get it done yesterday world, aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? Got a deal. Good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Dork, Dick. Dork, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Dork with Dick, Dave, and Dave. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dan. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. And all of this started with a college term paper. Its author was studying economics at Yale in 1965. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Anyone? Anyone? Having a grand old time as a fraternity member. I don't think you can fully judge a fraternity without looking at the positive qualities of the people in it. Getting gentlemanly C's. But this paper, this one, stood out. In it, a young undergrad pondered what would have to change in society, in logistics, as our world became more and more automated, more computerized. After all, computers break down. 
and always keeping a spare for every part would be impractical. So we needed a customized transportation system, one that could move valuable things cross-country. In the time it usually takes to move something cross-state. From that insight sprung one of the biggest companies in the world, today employing over 300,000 people. 300,000. A team that powers businesses of all sizes and the occasional giant panda adventure. We uh, needed to find a partner that could uh, transport the, the giant pandas from China to Canada. We also needed a partner that could ship the bamboo, which would be coming from the Memphis region. There's not many partners out there that can do all of that. We're very pleased that FedEx uh, stepped up. FedEx did more than just step up. They emblazoned a giant panda onto an airplane and called it the Panda Express. When something absolutely, positively has to get there, you call FedEx. But this idea may never have gotten off the ground. But for a family of entrepreneurs, but for a little old war called Vietnam, and but for a visionary young man, Fred Smith. Fred Smith was born in 1944 in Marks, Mississippi, a tiny town of about 2,000 people, due east of the mighty Mississippi River. Fred's grandfather, Captain James Buchanan Smith, was a master of steamboats along that river and the Ohio River, moving people and cargo up and downstream. Fred's father, James Frederick Smith, who also went by Fred, realized that the rivers of water connecting people then would soon give way to rivers of asphalt and concrete. And so he began selling trucks in nearby Memphis for the John T. Fisher Motor Company, one of the very first Chrysler franchises. In 1925, Fred's father took a truck that his boss had given him, replaced its cargo area with seating for 12, and began ferrying men and material around. What began as a one-man motor coach company turned into a 25-car company by the second year. And by the end of the third year, he had 60 coaches. Fred's father sold the company to Greyhound in 1931, more than a dozen years before Fred was born. But before young Fred could dream up ways to continue the family tradition of transportation, he had some other challenges. He had a rare childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip, which forced him to use crutches and watch sports from the sidelines in his early years. Fred outgrew the disease by the age of 10 and became an excellent football player. He even learned how to fly airplanes as a 15-year-old. Overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. And when we come back, more on the life of the founder of FedEx, Fred Smith. And you're going to learn about what a role his life in the Marine Corps played as it related to building this great company. This is our American Dreamer segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. 
This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's our American Dreamer segment, and you're learning a bit about Fred Smith, his father, his background, where he grew up, the founder of FedEx. I mean, it's hard to imagine life without FedEx, but it started with that thesis at Yale, and let's pick up where we left off. Fred outgrew the childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip by the age of 10, overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. Having grown up without a father, my, my, my father passed away when I was four. So I was heavily influenced by my uncles and by my coaches. And uh, they were the, the influences uh, that, that really, I, I, can, I can hear their voices to this day, you know, talking to me. And, and I, I still hear my uncles, all of them World War II veterans and Part of the greatest generation, and uh, and my my coaches there telling me, well, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Those same men inspired Fred to make a choice that would define his life and character. I was coming out of uh, high school. There wasn't much question about the fact I was going to do my military service. It was just a matter of uh, which branch, and uh, uh, so uh, the Marine Corps appealed to me. The uniforms looked great. Fred left Memphis in 1962 for Yale. He would train with the Marines during the summer and go to class during the year. Life seemed to be going according to plan. It was during his junior year at Yale that Fred came up with the original idea for FedEx in that term paper. But before Fred could grow that into something that would change the world, events halfway around the world sent Fred to a very different sort of classroom. He soon left Yale, left with a degree, and left with a commission as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, shipping out for the first of his two tours in Vietnam. I joined uh, my unit in Chulai. I became a platoon leader and uh, served in uh, India Company and uh, Lima Company. I was then given command of uh, K Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. This was a very different war than World War II, or Korea, with no clear battle lines. On a Monday morning in May 1968, Fred and his K Company engaged a much larger North Vietnamese battalion. Moving across fire-swept ground to reach higher elevation, Fred started calling down artillery and airstrikes to within 50 meters of where he himself stood. With fire support sowing confusion among the enemy, Fred and his Marines attacked and routed the much larger North Vietnamese force. 
What stands out most to Fred isn't the action. It's his fellow Marine. To this day, Fred beams with pride when he remembers the men he served with in K Company. Uh, there is nothing in my life that I'm more proud of than commanding K Company 3-5. They were the finest group of young men in those days that uh, you could ever hope to, to have, uh, courageous beyond belief. Fred Smith returned to the States and was honorably discharged as a captain, having earned a silver star, a bronze star, and two purple hearts. But he had had enough of war. Later saying of that time, I got so sick of destruction and blowing things up that I came back determined to do something more constructive. It was then that he thought of his college term paper about a transportation network for the new digital age. It was dusty, but more relevant than ever. It was pretty clear then uh, with IBM, uh, you know, installing the the big computers around that the world was going to change and the paper was about how this was going to change a lot of things and in particular it was going to change the way things had to be distributed and moved to support those automated uh, devices. Just as his grandfather and father used the cutting-edge technology of their day, Fred envisioned a seamless network of airplanes and trucks. Other companies in the 1960s were also trying to speed up movement of high-value items, but they stuck to systems designed for passengers. Fred realized that unlike passengers during that era, packages didn't have to go directly from origin to destination. Airplanes could speed packages to and from a national clearinghouse, and trucks could make the final delivery. This way, two small towns that don't have frequent flights, or any at all, could still be connected with the speed of airplanes. Fred had seen how such a system might work. The Marine Corps' air-ground integration is a huge benefit. And one of the big innovations that uh, Federal Express did, nobody had ever done before, was to have integrated air-ground operations. The pickup and delivery folks were uh, just like the pilots and the airplanes and, and everything was coordinated just as we had done in the Marine Corps and all of those lessons that I'd learned there uh, on, the, on the ground and in the air in Vietnam uh, played over and over in my mind as we were putting together the business plan uh, for FedEx. His father started his motor coach company with a truck. Fred started with a handful of airplanes. He had the idea that he would make deliveries for the Federal Reserve System by transporting, sorting, and rerouting checks, all with guaranteed delivery in 24 hours. Fred's calculations showed that he could save the American banking industry $3 million a day. He even named his company Federal Express, hoping that it would resonate with the banks and conjure up images of nationwide commerce. Today you know this company as FedEx, serving customers like this.
If a patient gets in a car accident and breaks their skull, we manufacture and produce the plates and screws that will actually screw into the bone and mend the fracture. So with these types of procedures, time is extremely valuable to the patient, to the surgeon, and everyone involved. So with our previous shipping carrier, it took us three days to ship the products from Freiburg, Germany, the, the manufacturing facility, here to the United States. That was, in many times, not fast enough. Exceptional service that FedEx provided for an urgent case uh, that was planned first thing on a Monday morning. The implant was shipped from Germany on Saturday morning by FedEx. It was imported into the United States, and it was received by the striker representative at the airport on Sunday evening. Now, this is a one-day transit time on the weekend from Europe to the United States. But back when the company was started, not one bank believed it could deliver. So Fred, like any Marine, adapted and overcame by making a slight course correction. He would deliver any company's time-sensitive material anywhere in the country with his 24-hour guarantee. It's not like we're carrying sand and gravel. You know, we're carrying chemotherapy drugs and important manuscripts and electronic parts and, and pieces for airplanes that are grounded. So when we pick it up and say we're going to have it there early the next morning, I mean, we have to deliver. There's nothing else to it. So this is guaranteed. If we don't get it there, I mean, we don't get, get paid. FedEx officially began operations in April of 1973. On their first night, they delivered 186 packages to 25 cities with 14 airplanes and 389 team members. Most outsiders expected this innovation to fail. As Fred would later say of that time, people thought we were bananas. We were too ignorant to know that we weren't supposed to be able to do certain things. Fred, though, believed. They were bananas. 14 planes packed with 185 packages. You know what a, that cost for package delivery was? How did he bring that price down? How did he make this thing go? How did he make this turkey fly? Well, let me tell you, it never was a turkey. Only the turkeys thought this was a turkey. When we come back... Fred Smith's remarkable story, the creation of FedEx, and let me tell you, you'll hear him say it over and over again. The U.S. Marine Corps taught him more about life than anything else in life. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Fred Smith's life, the founder of FedEx. And he talked about the fact that he lost his father, but it was those uncles and coaches. And so, man, if you're listening, you can always be a surrogate father to a boy who needs help. As he said, I can still hear their voices in my head. And without those men, there is no Fred Smith, I promise you. And he'll tell you that, too. By the way, John Woods did terrific work on this piece that we're about to hear the end of. Let's dive back into the life of Fred Smith and FedEx. In his time in Vietnam, he developed a willingness to take great risks to accomplish great things. Most businessmen couldn't imagine calling down bombs and napalm to within a few yards of themselves and their buddies. But sometimes... That's just what the mission requires. Fred's different experiences, different mindset, gave him a different take on his new business struggles. The, the currency of exchange in FedEx was just money. You know, it wasn't people's arms and legs or, or, or lives. And so my perspective on it was perhaps a bit more, um, I was willing to take, take a chance. Because losing wasn't the worst thing in the world that could happen to you. I had seen that very clearly. But Fred's confidence and the brilliance of the model, in hindsight, weren't enough to create immediate success. Three months after FedEx's launch, delivery drivers were frequently digging into their own pockets for gas money. And back in Memphis, things were just as grim. Federal Express had already lost one-third of its startup money. Roger Frock, a FedEx co-founder, recalled the desperate measures that had to be taken. By mid-July, our funds were so meager that on Friday we were down to about $5,000 in the checking account, while we needed $24,000 for the jet fuel payment. When I arrived back in Memphis on Monday morning, much to my surprise, the bank balance stood at nearly $32,000. I asked Fred where the funds had come from, and he responded, I knew we needed money for Monday, so I took a plane to Las Vegas and won $27,000. I said, you mean you took our last $5,000? How could you do that? He shrugged his shoulders and said, what difference does it make? Without the funds for the fuel companies, we couldn't have flown anyway. As it turns out, time overseas had taught Fred more than the difference between reckless and calculated risk. It also gave him a chance to practice card games. Two years in Vietnam, we played a lot of poker and a lot of blackjack, and in those days, you only had one deck. So if you knew how to play, it was easier to win. But the winnings didn't last long, and by October, only three months later, Federal Express was on death's doorstep again. Nearly killed in the cradle by the Arab oil embargo, gas prices skyrocketed. Federal Express was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And if it fell, it would take with it not only the $40 million of venture capital, but Fred's and his family's life savings as well. By April of 1975, two years after its opening night, Federal Express had lost nearly $29 million. Though it was losing money, the company's customer base was growing and the underlying idea was as sound as ever. But Fred will be the first to admit that there's no such thing 
as a new idea. If you brought Julius Caesar back to Earth, he would understand the organization of, of FedEx because he basically invented it. Uh, we have our proconsul in Hong Kong. He had his in Palestine. Uh, we have our technical folks, our IT people, our aviation maintenance folks. He had his charioteers, his catapult operators, his engineers. And in July 1975, the company began showing a profit. And just nine years later, in 1984, Federal Express surpassed $1 billion in revenue. The first company to ever do so in its own right. Since then, FedEx has grown so much that it is woven into pop culture without the company even trying. Like in the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. And I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. Hey, but by the way, what's in the package? Nothing really, just a satellite phone, GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. Just silly stuff. Thank you again. You keep up the good work. When asked what was the key to his success, Fred is well known to give the credit to his employees. After all, they are on the front lines of the business, and of course, he learned the importance of that once again in the Marines. It was the recognition that in a high-performance service organization, it's not the people at the top that are the most important folks in the equation, it's the customer service people. There are many units under the FedEx umbrella, and each has a branding color scheme, purple and orange for Original Express, purple and green for ground, purple and crimson for freight, and so on, all united by purple. Every FedEx employee knows what Fred Smith calls the purple promise, the simple pledge that I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. Employees like Trung Do. The day I was rescued and sent to the refugee camp, just the day I consider myself reborn. But the day I got a job with FedEx, that's the day I consider I have a new life, the best life I ever dream of. Trung served alongside Americans during the Vietnam War and was sent to a hard labor camp by vengeful communists after America left. He eventually escaped and made his way to the States, where he dedicated his life to working on the same planes at the same company as the man who had sponsored him to come to America. Trung enrolled in Aviation Mechanics School in Memphis, a stone's throw away from FedEx DC-10 airplanes coming and going. And the whole time I was in school, sitting in the back of the school, looking across runway 27 with FedEx over there, I was dreaming. I was praying to God. I want to be there someday. He soon passed the mechanic test, applied to work at FedEx, and waited by the phone. When FedEx called me and said that uh, FedEx is gonna give me a job as a senior mechanic with uh, this kind of pay, blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, I, mean, I was blind. I mean, I was deaf. My ears ringing. I couldn't hear a thing. All I hear is FedEx hiring me. Three decades later, Trung Do is still working for FedEx in Fort Myers, Florida, 
keeping their 550 mile per hour delivery trucks in top condition. Still working for you. FedEx is still working for you for when your package absolutely, positively, has to be there overnight. And when it does, think of Fred Smith, who made it all possible. And thank your delivery driver, the way Fred would want. And great job on that, John Woods. As always, these American Dreamer segments brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. I want to leave you with this simple thought. Fred Smith said, there are two simple rules to being a good combat leader, to be the first to charge up the hill and be the last in line to eat. He has clearly kept those things in mind long after leaving the Marines. He said this, although I'm chairman of the corporation, I can't get myself to cut into the line in the company cafeteria. Somewhere, a voice reminds me that a good officer lets his troops eat first. This is our American Stories. American Dreamers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Catch all of ours. You'll love the Mario Andretti story. This is Our American Stories, and today we have a story that's personal to one of our team members. That happens from time to time. We can't help ourselves. Our lives, all of our lives, sometimes carry with it some universal thought or theme. And here's the story of Faith's friend, Jennifer. So at the beginning of my struggle with depression, I saw a picture of four smiley faces and each one had a word under it. The first one, the word happy, the second, the word sad, the third, the word depressed, and the fourth, suicidal. And they were all happy faces. And this was just so true of my experience. I was hiding behind the image of being happy and being okay, when the reality of what was actually underneath was so different. I got really good at putting the face on just enough and convincing people just enough that I was okay so they didn't start asking too many questions. I struggled with perfectionism and that led to feeling completely unlovable and utterly unworthy of anything. I felt guilt, I felt shame, I felt physical pain and sickness and ailments with unknown causes. I lost my voice, my ability to say no and stick up for myself. I lost myself altogether, not being able to answer, who am I? I felt misunderstood. I lost parts of myself I never planned on. I felt a deep loneliness and a lack of deep, vulnerable connections. I felt grief. I lost a family member dear to my heart that I wasn't ready to say goodbye to or mourn their death. I felt exhausted, sometimes insomnia. Or other times, I took three-hour naps every day to make it through and to relieve myself temporarily the pain I felt. 
I battled an endless stream of thoughts in my mind and at times I wasn't able to put together a single sentence. I hid or I ran. At one point I got on a plane without anyone knowing to create some sort of movement in my life that if I could move my physical body somewhere then maybe it would create a change and I could find a reason to live. But ultimately, it was not being able to give myself a single reason to live. It was not showing emotion and then utterly losing it and crying, crying, crying my eyes out. It was trying to care for other people as a way of avoiding and trying to give from a place of empty. It was over-exercising and then eating and eating and eating and gaining weight in a cycle that never ended. It was becoming numb and numbing in whatever way I could find. It was dabbling in drinking. It was wanting to feel physical pain instead of the emotional cloud following me around. It was feeling rejected. It was feeling judged. It was where in the hell is this God that I grew up hearing about? That he's supposed to be good? Is anything at all out there? So two big ones um, for me was having sex even though I wasn't ready. And I really honestly wasn't a yes but I just wanted to feel something. A few different um, partners and a few times thinking I might be pregnant um, turned into a friend being brave enough to buy a test for me and uh, she got the dirtiest look from an older woman. And it turns out I wasn't pregnant, but if I had been, those looks would have just about killed me on the spot. And the second big one for me was an almost trauma-like burden I carried from having traveled around the world working um, with poverty and in orphanages and with children with mental and physical disabilities. I took their pain, their starvation, their hopelessness, and I literally carried it around with me like a nightmare for years. So I remember it getting really bad after going through about six weeks of vertigo without doctors being able to tell me why. I saw things that weren't quite there and heard things not quite audibly tell me that it was better if I die and that I don't matter. After those weeks, I became extremely lonely. I remember my first ever real, raw, terrifying suicidal thought. It was on Good Friday, infamous as the day that Jesus died. And as horrible as it sounds, I figured it wouldn't make the day any sadder. If this figure of love and hope had died on that day, I might as well too. And the only thing that saved me um, was having things on my schedule because I was still wanting to maintain that happy face. That identity of nothing's wrong, I'm okay. But in reality, there were thoughts and plans running through my head. After that, I knew something was seriously wrong and I began to distract myself and use anything I could to forget what I was actually feeling. This went on for months and continued to make more of a mess for my life rather than dig me out of the dark hole. Finally, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't hide, I couldn't run, I couldn't do anything. I wanted to die. It was all I could think about, hope for, and truly want. And so because it all started to come out, I was placed on a suicide hold. Now, there's probably some really nice mental health facilities, but this wasn't one of them. I ended up with more pain when I left than when I entered. The only good thing about it was that it created a safe space physically to completely fall apart. I cried more than I had in my entire life combined. I plotted how I was going to kill myself with the tiny pencils the mental health workers lent out for a few minutes. I wanted to use the edge of my toothpaste bottle to feel more physical pain.
I felt empty. I felt like less than a piece of trash. So this was almost exactly a year ago. And I spent my birthday there in the crazy house where we couldn't even go outside except for a caged-in patio. And for the few friends I made who were going through a similar experience, we passed the time by plotting our escape, mostly as a joke, but also partly true that we were trying to escape the prison and the walls our feelings and depression had built around us. After a week, I transitioned out and began 90 days of a recovery program I went to five days a week, all day long. I was with people with depression, anxiety, getting clean and sober, and more. These people alongside of me, despite stigmas, were all trying to be real together with our stories and express what was actually true. It was hard, really hard, putting the pieces back together. It was painful and messy and took a crap load of courage. Slowly I started to see a bit of sunshine filling in the tiniest parts of the darkness. I learned that I could suddenly start using every emoji in the book. Not just the smiley face with the rosy cheeks that kind of looks fake. I could be happy, sad, angry, I could be sick, and that was okay. That I had permission to feel something other than happiness or perfection. Emotions aren't horrible, awful, scary things. They're real and they pass. I would share the things that worked for me, but you see, depression is so complex and the ways people tried to fix or give suggestions to make it better only hurt me more in the long run. And so while finding yoga and searching for God with renewed purpose and hypnotherapy and group therapy and people loving on me and just listening all brought so much healing, it was much more than any steps I took. For every person, it's honestly different and it's more about the journey than the actual stops or steps along the way. Now, so many people hurt me in the process of my journey. Um, what they did do or didn't do, what they did say or didn't say. Reactions, judgments, not listening, not just simply loving. My intention is to remain honorable in the telling of my story and respond with love. Their side of the sidewalk may be a mess, but mine is mine. And I'm responsible for only mine. And so, with a year under my belt, I'd like to think I'm healed and moving on. But no, just because I went through all that, I'm not just suddenly depression-free. I still experience old feelings coming back up. I still sometimes struggle to keep my head above the water. I still have to work to take care of myself every day. I don't like the idea of my birthday so much this year because it's brought up so many feelings and memories of how the last one was. I keep moving forward with vulnerability, tears, laughter, sometimes yelling in the car, <laughs> all with bravery. And I have to watch myself in the midst of gloom and rain because I now know that it does actually affect me. But I am open in both heart and listening and love. It's been amazing having people tell me their own similar stories without knowing mine, asking me for advice in how to love someone they know struggling. Now, my dream, my vision, is to be an inspiration in the story of mental health and mental health care. So, I'm now honored to be a storyteller. Never did I ever think I would be telling a big part of my story. But I'm also a lover of people's stories. I love hearing people's stories, and I hope these short minutes open the door to hearing more. And Faith, uh, just tell me about the depth of this, and did you know about this with Jennifer? 
You know, I knew that she was struggling. Um, but like she said, she maintained that happy face until she broke, um, until she had completely lost hope, hope to reach the standards that she had raised for herself in her mind. And even though she still struggles, I think what has saved her at this point is that little glimmer of hope that she's able to see now, which is helping others in light of her struggle, that ability to empathize, to be able to say to someone else, me too, knowing that that can actually save somebody's life. Well, that was a beautiful story. And Jennifer, thanks for your courage. Thanks for sharing that story here on Our American Stories. We go light, we go funny. But folks, depression, we've talked about opioid addiction, uh, suicide, you know from stories I've told, I lost a niece to suicide. So we will cover this because it happens and it's sad. But talking about it, well, if my, my little niece had had someone to talk to that night, she'd be with us today. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.